Amen. A wonderful time of worship this morning. Turn with me to Acts chapter 1. We will look at verses 1 through 3 this morning. Book of Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. We're going through a sermon series entitled, Asking for a Friend. Questions maybe you have wondered, but you really did not want to ask them. We're looking at some of those questions and some of those answers. Uh, the um, previous sermons are on our podcast called Authentic. You'll see in the worship guide how to listen to those, including the message that I preached on Friday night, what it was like to endure a Roman crucifixion. That sermon is on the podcast as well. One of the questions that you may have in the back of your mind may have occurred this week. Easter week, Jesus is alive and maybe in the back of your mind you're wondering, is he really alive? I mean, dead people just don't come back to life. I've never seen that ever happen. Now, you would never ask that question in church because we're, you know, a church and we're singing about Jesus being alive. But, but maybe you're wondering, how do you know he's alive? Is there any proof? I mean, you have the eyewitnesses, but, but they were believers. Do you have any proof from unbelievers? And the Bible tells us, but the Bible's kind of biased. So is there, is there any, any proof outside of the Bible that Jesus really did come back from the dead? That's what we're going to look at this morning. Actually, there is proof. Look at chapter 1, verse 1 of Acts. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up after through the Holy Spirit had given him commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs being seen by them during forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. This morning, let's look at some of those infallible proofs that Luke talked about. Let's look at proof that Jesus came back from the dead. Letter A on your outline. First of all, let's look at our text, our passage we just read, Acts 1, 1 through 3. Luke wrote the book of Acts as a sequel or a follow-up to the gospel of Luke. So some people have called Acts Luke 2. It is the sequel that follows. And the reason Luke wrote it, there was a, a high official named Theophilus. We really don't know much about him. But he wrote to Theophilus because Theophilus wanted to know a detailed account of the life of Jesus. And Luke, who was a physician, a medical doctor, he recorded this. So as he's writing, he tells us that Jesus presented himself alive after the resurrection. The word he uses there in the Greek language for presented is the word peristomy. literally means come and stand alongside of you. So after the resurrection, there were times Jesus come and stood right beside people after he came back alive where they could touch him and, and, and see him and, and know that he was real. And then Luke said that there were many infallible proofs. Now that phrase is interesting because 
The words infallible proofs, two words in English, there's only one word in the Greek language, one word that, that Luke used. It was the word tekmerion, which meant obvious or something in plain sight. So what Luke was saying was, for 40 days after the resurrection, Jesus, he didn't go hide somewhere. It wasn't like, hey, I heard Jesus is alive. Well, I haven't seen him. He was out in plain sight so everybody could see him. Many infallible proofs. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I was preaching in this sermon series on asking for a friend, how do you know the Bible is true? And in that message, I talked about authenticity. You needed two things for authenticity. You needed eyewitnesses and you needed early documents. Add both of them together, you have authenticity. Here's what I mean by that. For example, in the Bible, as you're looking at the Bible, is the Bible true? There were eyewitnesses, as the document is written, people who had lived that, and if it were not true, they simply could have said, hey, wait a minute, I, I was there, what we're reading is not accurate, that really didn't happen. So you need eyewitnesses. But second of all, you need early documents that record the event. Why early documents? Well, from the time something happened, if you don't write about it for hundreds of years, then there, there's a lot of time for urban legends to develop, the story to grow, the story to become inaccurate, and frankly, to be embellished. For example, Plato, from the time that Plato taught and, and wrote and, 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 and spoke, till the time we have the earliest document, 1,400 years. 1,400. A lot can happen in 1,400 years. But with the Bible, it's recorded within 14 years. So we know that the Bible is authentic. Now, what about the resurrection? The earliest documents written recording the resurrection, 10 years. 10 years. Hardly any time for urban legends to develop, the story become embellished, eyewitnesses who were there could verify this is what happened. Ten years. Several years ago, there was a, um, a man by the name of Dr. Anthony Flew, who was one of the world's foremost philosophical atheists. Dr. Flew did not believe in the resurrection. He did not believe that Jesus came back alive, and he said, I can prove Jesus did not come back from the dead. Well, at the same time, there was a leading theologian who, uh, who was a, a, an expert in the area of the resurrection, Dr. Gary Habermas. He, and you see both of their pictures here. Dr. Habermas on the left has a Ph.D. from Michigan State. He is the philosophy chair at Liberty University. Dr. Flew on the right did not believe the resurrection happened. Both of them in the media went back and forth. Yes, we have proof it did. No, we do not have proof. Well, they decided to debate. So Dr. Habermas and Dr. Flew agreed to a debate. Here are the ground rules. They chose five philosophy professors from across the United States at different universities. They were not believers, but they were open to hearing if the resurrection was true or not. They served as the panel. They served as 
the judges. So both of them would make their case, and the five judges would decide, is the resurrection true based on the evidence or not? So they agreed. The debate began. First of all, they asked, are there any facts upon which we both agree? Let's begin there. Anything upon which we both agree is true. And they said yes. So they came up with 12 undeniable facts that were true. And that's letter B on your outline. 12 undeniable facts of the resurrection. Even the atheists agreed to this. Here are the 12. Number one, Jesus died due to the rigors of crucifixion. They both agreed on that. Number two, Jesus was buried. Number three, Jesus' death caused his disciples to despair and lose hope. They both agreed on that. Number four, the tomb was empty. Both agreed. Number five, Jesus' disciples believed they saw him alive after the resurrection. Number six, Jesus' disciples were transformed from doubters to bold proclaimers. Both the atheists and the Christian agreed to that. Number seven, the resurrection was central to the disciples' preaching after the event. Number eight, the resurrection message was proclaimed in Jerusalem. They agreed. Number nine, the church was born and grew. Number ten, Sunday became the primary day of worship. It was the Sabbath. It was Saturday before the resurrection. After the resurrection, it was switched to Sunday. Number eleven, James, the skeptical brother of Jesus, became a believer. And number twelve, Paul, a famous persecutor of Christianity, became a believer in Jesus also. Twelve undeniable facts, the atheist and the Christian both agreed on these twelve. Those are the ground rules. This is the beginning point. They started. Dr. Flew, the atheist, went first. He said, I agree to all twelve of these facts. But there's a simple explanation. Somebody stole the body of Jesus out of the tomb. Simple. His body was stolen. So Dr. Flew then, after that assertion, went into a philosophical rather than a factual explanation of what happened. It was time now for Dr. Habermas. He stood up and he said, question, who would have the motive to steal the body? Who would have a motive? The Romans? They didn't care what Jesus did. They didn't care anything about the Jews or the Romans or, the, or Jesus. The Jews, would they have a motive to steal the body? Absolutely not. They wanted the body there because they did not want resurrection stories. They had no motive to steal the body. What about his disciples? Would they have motive? Absolutely not. Because with the body being stolen, with preaching the resurrection, they will be beaten, imprisoned, tortured, property confiscated, killed, and their families along with them. So why would they steal the body knowing all of that's going to happen and it's a lie? So why would you steal the body and then give your life for what you know is a lie? 
makes no sense. Next. Are there documents outside of the Bible that talk about the resurrection? Yes. Letter C on your outline. Was anything said about the resurrection outside of the Bible? Let me give you a few. Josephus. There were historians and writers back in these days who did not believe in Jesus. They recorded what happened. They weren't followers of Jesus. Josephus, probably the most famous historian of that day, wrote about Jesus. Listen to what he wrote, quote, Jesus appeared to his disciples restored to life on the third day. The Jewish prophets had foretold this, and a tribe of Christians still has not disappeared to this day. That was 100 AD, end quote. Josephus said, absolutely, the resurrection seemed to have happened. Let's go to the next one, to Titus. Tychidus was a historian. He was not a believer. In fact, he mocked Christianity and called it only a superstition. But listen to what he wrote about the resurrection. Tychidus said, quote, Jesus lived, was executed by Pilate, and said to have resurrected. And he was so convincing that in 65 A.D., Nero felt the need to extinguish all of his followers, end quote. Let's go to Pliny, a third one, Pliny the Younger. There was Pliny the Elder, Pliny the Younger. Pliny the Younger was a governor in northwest Turkey. He wrote letters back to the Roman emperor, who was Trajan at the time, and we have documents of those letters. And in those letters, Pliny describes Christians, even though he was not one himself, and here's what he said. Christians worshiped Jesus as God because he came back from the dead. They began meeting on Sundays. They shared a meal together, all because he resurrected. The Babylonian Talmud, a document that mocks Christianity, especially the virgin birth, talked a lot about the resurrection. And the last one, Lucian, he was a satirist. He was a playwright from the second century. Spoke at length, on and on, about the resurrection of Jesus. You have documents after documents that talk about the resurrection that are outside of the Bible. Well, the debate was over. The judges voted. Four of the five said that Dr. Habermas, the Christian, won the debate. Nobody voted for Dr. Flew. One philosopher called it a draw. Four of the five said the Christian's evidence was greater. What was the evidence? Let's look the rest of the message at the evidence. Letter D on your outline a little more closely look, closer look at the evidence. Number one, the Roman guard. The Roman guard. The Bible tells us that after Jesus died, they placed his body in the tomb, 
and they ordered a Roman guard to guard the tomb. Now, it's singular, Roman guard, so most people think, oh, it's one person. It was 16 men. A Roman guard was a platoon of 16 men. Four stayed on watch at all times, and the other 12 who were not on watch would form a semicircle around them, and they would sleep. Their duty would be over. They would then sleep, and the one sleeping would take place. They would take, take uh, uh, watch. And so 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you had the Roman guard, 16 men who were guarding the tomb. The Roman guard was the elite of the Roman army. They were the highly trained. They were the special ops. They were the, the Navy SEALs. They were the ones that were highly trained, the Roman guard. And it was that guard that was placed at the tomb because they feared the body would be stolen. So they made it extra secure. Who's going to get past those guys? Not only that, did they have motive to stay awake? Yes, they did, because if the body's stolen, the guards pay with their life. Here's what happens. They're stripped naked, their clothes are taken, they're burned, this fire begins with their clothes, and they're burned in front of everybody as a witness to show that you don't be derelict with your duty. It's a Roman guard. Did they have motive to keep anybody out of that tomb? Absolutely. The first evidence, 16 men, highly trained, watching the body. Number two, the stone. The stone in front of the grave. The Bible tells us whenever Jesus was placed in the tomb, they would roll a stone in front of the mouth of the opening of the cave where the tomb was. There was a hinge through by which they could roll the stone because the stone was enormous. It, it weighed 4,000 pounds, weighed two tons. In fact, it took four men to roll the stone in place. The ladies on Easter Sunday morning, they're going to the tomb, and their mind, they're, they're not thinking of resurrection, they're thinking, who's going to help us roll the stone away so we can get in and anoint the body of Jesus and pay our respect to the dead body? So they're thinking as they're walking, I wonder how we're going to get that stone rolled away. They didn't realize that when they got there, the stone was already rolled away. Not to let Jesus out, but to let us in. Here's something else they did. The Bible tells us the stone was sealed. So they rolled it in place. What was the sealing? What did that mean? They would take cords, fasten it from one side to the other. They would secure it on both ends. And then they would take a sealing compound where they put where the stone was securely in place and nobody could move it, and then it was affixed with the seal of the Roman government. And whoever broke the seal was subject to the death penalty. So here's the picture. You have a stone, a massive 4,000-pound stone rolled in front of the tomb. You have it fastened, secured, a sealing compound. You have 16 men out here, four of them always on duty. Their lives are on the line, and they're guarding the body. 
nobody, nobody's getting in there. Dr. Frank Morrison was an atheist for many years, became a believer, and started writing about Christianity. He said, just the stone itself is proof of the resurrection. Number three, I think number three is greater proof, the grave clothes. The grave clothes. Both Luke and John tell us that whenever they walked into the tomb and the body's gone, they saw something interesting to the side. They saw grave clothes that were folded. Wait a second. What were grave clothes? Whenever someone died, they wrapped them in cloths. One wrapping was the head, another wrapping was the neck all the way down in one piece to the feet. So they would, they would wrap the body and they would then put a layer of spices and rosin just to anoint the body to keep it from smelling. And another layer of wrapping and then rosin and another layer and spices and rosin, another layer until finally you're completely wrapped like a mummy. And they would lay them like that. So if you walked in, you would expect to see the grave clothes unwound lying in a pile. It's not what they saw. They saw the grave clothes wrapped. And the headpiece, called the napkin, folded up and lying there. It was almost as if Jesus' body had... Had, had the, the, the rosin and the spices had hardened the body to the point where an imprint was made and like a butterfly out of a cocoon, and it just collapsed. That's what they saw. And it was folded. Folks, if you're going to steal the body, who takes time to unwrap it and then put the body over here and wrap it back up? Who takes time to fold it neatly? Or if you just stole the body quickly and ran because you got 16 men out there, you just grab it and run, there'd be no grave clothes at all. But the grave clothes were in place, like someone had gone through them. And both Luke and John reported. They marveled at the grave clothes. Number four, the empty tomb. No skeptic of Christianity has been able to explain the tomb's empty. When the women went in, the body's gone. When the disciples got in, they looked, body's gone. When the authorities got there, body's gone. Roman soldiers walk in, body's gone. The tomb's empty. Now, just a few weeks later, the disciples began to preach publicly in Jerusalem, Jesus is alive, he resurrected. If the, if the tomb was not empty, all the authorities had to do was say, time out with your preaching, hold on a second. We have, a, we have an exhibit for you. And they go get the dead body and they bring it out and say, don't listen to them, here he is. But they couldn't. He's gone. 
Peter Lewis wrote, Nail his body on the city wall and the Christian movement ends. He's right. They're preaching resurrection. Go get his body. Nail it to the wall. Everybody can see him. Every day he's dead and Christianity stops. But they couldn't. The body's gone. Somebody said, the silence of the Jews was as loud as the preaching of the Christians. It's been 2,000 years. Nobody can answer the question, what happened to the body? Because the tomb is still empty. Number five, resurrection appearances. There is recorded at least 12 resurrection appearances in Scripture. Forty days, Jesus walked this earth, at least 12 times he appeared to somebody. It wasn't like he resurrected and went into hiding. He appeared to individuals. He appeared to, to, to couples. He appeared to small groups. He appeared one time to 500 people at once. We probably in this service probably have about 500 here. He, he appeared one time to as many people as we have here. Y'all saw him. And so the weight of all these appearances together is heavy proof of the resurrection. I mean, we're not talking about one or two sightings like Bigfoot. We're talking that he was everywhere, which gives weight to the resurrection. Number six, initial unbelief. Initial unbelief. It is a powerful point, I believe, in favor of the resurrection that none of his disciples were expecting a resurrection. None of them. It wasn't like, oh, I'm hoping, I'm hoping he'll be alive on Sunday. I'm hoping the tomb's empty when I get there. They weren't thinking that. In fact, when his disciples and his followers heard about a resurrection, they didn't believe it. The ladies at the tomb, they got there, the tomb was empty. You know, what you know what they said? They didn't say, oh, praise God, resurrection. They said, Gardner, where is his body? You did something. with. Please bring us his body. What would you do with it? They thought the gardener took it. They weren't expecting resurrection. And then the women saw Jesus. He appeared to them. And so they ran to the disciples. Guess what? We have seen the Lord. And the Bible said the disciples thought it was like an idle tale and wishful thinking. Uh, disciples didn't believe Nobody was expecting resurrection. All of them had to be convinced against their wills. He was alive. And then number seven, the radical change in the disciples. The radical change in the disciples. L listen to this. Friday afternoon at the cross, Jesus was being crucified. His 11 disciples, there were, there were 12, but Judas had, had killed himself. His 11 disciples, when Jesus was being crucified, they were scared to death. They were frightened. They were dazed. They were confused. They were disoriented. And the Bible said every one of them turned and ran. And they watched from a distance. So they're hiding and they're watching to see what happened at the cross. Scared. 
forward a few days. And those very same disciples are standing on the temple steps saying, Jesus Christ is Lord, He's risen, He's crucified, and you're the ones that killed Him. And they said, you stop preaching or we'll kill you. And they said, kill us. And they died for their faith. Now, what happened between Friday and this day? What changed them from from cowards to lions? What was it? Resurrection. They knew Jesus was alive. Now, here's the bottom line. If this story is true, and I believe it is, if this really happened, it is a game changer for you, for me. You see, I have a choice to make. I either have to believe this and submit my life to it and say, Lord, I ask you to be my Lord and Savior and come into my life and I give every part of my life totally to you. Or you can reject this evidence and say, I don't believe it. But, but you can't be neutral. There are a lot of people who try. Well, yeah, I, I guess I do believe Jesus, but I, I don't. I know I don't live the way I should. I know I don't go to church, and well, I go every Easter, but that's about all. There's no neutrality. You either believe this and give Him your life, or reject the evidence. But you can't be neutral. So don't try. It doesn't work. Some of you this morning need to say, Heavenly Father, I believe it really happened. And if it did, I give Jesus my life. And that's the decision some of you need to make. One more note. You remember Dr. Gary Habermas? Picture, he was the Christian who won the debate. Several years after the debate, his wife, Debbie, contracted cancer, stomach cancer. She died a long, slow, painful death. One day, students from Dr. Habermas' class came to his house to visit him and to see his wife and and to just encourage them. She was not far from being gone then. They went out on the porch, and Dr. Habermas told the class that were out there, he said, guys, I want you to remember something. The resurrection is not a debate to be won. It is a reality to be lived. My wife, Debbie, is in there dying of cancer. But I know with certainty, because Jesus came back from the dead, she's a believer, she will as well. I'm a believer. I'll see her again. That's the truth of the resurrection. Not out debating somebody, but living the power of the resurrection here and into eternity. Folks, the bottom line is this. The resurrection Easter is not about eggs or new clothes our family coming over, Sunday dinner. It's about life and death. It's about where you go when you die. 
And because Jesus took your place, submitting to His Lordship, you too can live. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for Your Word today and thank You for the truth of the resurrection. Lord, there is evidence of Jesus alive, being alive, but Lord, also it's a reality to be lived. So, Father, I, I pray for those in our congregation, those by live stream today, that they'll move from the, from the intellectual to the, to the heart, from knowing in their mind that the evidence is there, to committing their heart to you. So, Lord, I pray during this time, during this invitation, as we have the opportunity to do so, help us to submit to you. In Jesus' name, amen.